For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. As the Lord inspires His people to begin rebuilding the wall and restore Jerusalem, the devil begins to work. Here in chapter 4, we get a glimpse into some of his schemes. Now let's join Pastor Ross in a message entitled, Watch, Guard, Work, and Pray. Well, you know the saying, many hands make light work, and that is so true. Here in Nehemiah chapter 3, Uh, There is a long list of very helpful hands, 41 families that are involved in the work of rebuilding the wall. Uh, They are putting their hands to the noble task of rebuilding Jerusalem, uh, mostly that the the all-important wall that protects the city and really defines it, and also the massive gates 12 in all, I believe the 10 really need uh, extensive uh, repair. So uh, we've been taking a look at this book, and we're, we're seeing now that the Lord has called back the exiles, uh, those he chastised earlier, uh, a century and a half previously. Um, they had been exiled to the Middle East, mostly Iraq and Iran, Um, And now he, as in keeping with his promise, he's bringing them back. um, And he's helping them to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, just a pile of rubble. And uh, they are, with God's help, putting the promised land, the center, the capital, uh, back together again. Uh, To start, it was uh, led by a priest named Ezra. He led the way, and now a cupbearer named Nehemiah, a cupbearer to the Persian king, 800 miles away, uh, getting a call or a burden on his heart uh, to go and be part of the answer uh, there in Jerusalem. And his name, of course, is Nehemiah. Uh, That is 13 years after Ezra, Nehemiah is on the scene. And so just to catch you up again, uh, chapters 1 and 2, we saw that Nehemiah got this tremendous burden of compassion. He prayed it out for about four months uh, and then got the king's blessing, his boss, the one he's the wine steward and really in the food court and the advisor to the king. And um, the king blessed him with funds and permission, and letters of recommendation, and and an armed guard to go with him. And so he traveled the 800 miles uh, to Jerusalem from a few miles north of the Persian Gulf. So that's quite a trip. He arrives at Jerusalem, kind of scopes out uh, the ruins of Zion. Zion's just another name for Jerusalem. And uh, he inspires the remnant there to get back to work and see God do uh, the impossible through them. Now, in spite of some pretty hostile uh, opponents, namely the two kingpins that we've met, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, these are non-Jewish Middle Eastern opponents and really enemies of anything Jewish, but they do, they're occupying 
the land. And so they make life very difficult for Nehemiah and the Jewish family that wants to, families that want to come back together and rebuild the wall. Uh, they are, the, the enemies are bent on hindering the restoration of the city uh, of the great king. Now, that's it. Now we are up to Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, this is where the work begins, and it's overwhelming work at that. And the 40-plus uh, names and the families that are mentioned uh, have a specific task. And chapter 3 is just a long list of names uh, with specific details about what each family and group of families did uh, with the wall. Now, instead of reading this very long and tedious uh, list, because I don't have any intention of robbing you the pleasure of going through these names at home uh, at your leisure, I would like to sum up some couple observations about chapter 3 before going into chapter 4, where the plot continues. So... Um, how do we make a list of 41 names and 41 job descriptions a little easier to understand and a bit more interesting? You guessed it. A picture. A diagram. They always help, right? All right. So here's chapter three in a nutshell. All right. So here are the old city boundaries here you see. And so Nehemiah, with God's wisdom, divides up the work into 41 sections. Uh, the average section will be 250 feet long. And so different families um, from all around Judea are, are assigned a task to do there. And the gates, 10 of the 12, apparently two of them didn't need much repair. 10 of them are mentioned and they're all around here, like the fountain gate, the dung gate, the, where the garbage went out. They each had a description uh, here, the horse gate, the east gate. In fact, they're all listed. The sheep gate, the fish gate, the old gate, the valley gate, the refuse gate, the fountain gate, the water gate, the horse gate, the east gate, and the inspection gate. Now, very interesting. Really, the only gate that I want to call your attention to and then make a couple observations about the work of chapter 3, is the Eastern Gate. Here's a picture of what it looks like today. Thank you. The Eastern Gate. Now, if you go to uh, Israel with us, you, you will stand and look at the Eastern Gate. It's still standing. Um, let me show you a picture of if you're looking up at the Mount of Olives... If you're looking from the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem, you, will, you are standing on the Mount of Olives now from this view, and there's the Eastern Gate. Now, uh, the Muslims who captured in the uh, 1500s uh, heard about the prophecy that Messiah would come through the Eastern Gate, so they put a cemetery in here thinking that the Messiah being Jewish uh, would not defile himself by stepping on a, on a grave, which they weren't allowed to come in contact with. Um, I don't think that's going to prevent Jesus from uh, coming through that gate. Uh, let me show you. If you're standing at the gate and looking up at Mount of Olives, so you're, 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 you're standing here. So uh, we go up in, in here into 
the olive groves, some of the trees are 2,000 years old, so some of those trees might have been around when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and so you're looking there. Now, the scriptures clearly say that Jesus came from the east the first time. He came down from the Mount of Olives and in through the eastern gate the first time to declare himself king to pay for our sins. And uh, clearly in Revelation 19, when he comes again as a conqueror, he is said in uh, Zechariah 14 to come through the east again, also that his feet would touch the Mount of Olives, and he's going to come down the same exact path that he took the first time, the second time. And he's going to go through this eastern gate. Ezekiel chapter 43 and 44, check that out. It says, for a season, the eastern gate will be sealed. No one will go through it until Messiah comes and enters through. And so uh, the Six-Day War, June 7th, 1967, the Jews got hold of that gate for the very first time in 1,986 years, something like that. No, 1,896 years. They are now still in control of it. And so that gate remains shut and sealed. And they, the religious Jews, are waiting for Messiah. So it's pretty exciting stuff, amen? So I hope you sign up tonight to come and, and stand there and walk down that road. It's just amazing. Let me give you some insights, though. The observation, the takeaway from chapter 3, uh, really, and you can go back to the diagram, is uh, the, the New Testament a companion text would be, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. And so uh, here you'll, you're going to see in chapter 3, when you read it tonight, um, that everybody's valuable. Everybody has a job. Uh, there was a place for everyone and a job for everyone to do. And God uses all kinds of people. In chapter 3, you'll find rulers and laymen and uh, skilled people and non-skilled people, just uh, everybody who had a heart for the work. Uh, you will also see in chapter 3 that not everybody joined in. Some of the leaders from some of the towns said that the work was beneath them. Uh, that is sad, but that is always the case. You always have some people who don't join in the work. Uh, also, some worked harder than others. Uh, when they got done, some of them said, hey, we're done. We want to help others. And so they get a shout out in chapter three. Warren Wiersbe just concludes uh, his commentary on that section, um, chapter three, by saying this, and then we'll move on. No one person could have accomplished the work of repairing this great wall and restoring the gates. It took leadership and Nehemiah's, on Nehemiah's part and the cooperation of the people. Each had a place to fill and a job to do. So it is with the church. Uh, we must work together, um, united by God's grace and empowered by his spirit if we are to finish the work uh, for the glory of God. And of course, the overall theme that makes this interesting to us is that we are called uh, in the New Testament co-builders with God. In fact, he calls us his building. Uh, in 
1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, uh, the Lord is telling us that we are like living stones, that we make up this uh, spiritual house for him for which he shines in a very dark world. And so uh, we are all Nehemiah. We are doing God's work, and we're going to see uh, many parallels when we try to do the work of God, uh, that we run into the same kinds of uh, situations that Nehemiah did. And so uh, with that, the vision now is burning in people's hearts. At the end of chapter 3, uh, people are in place. The workers know what to do. The tools are flying. The rocks are moving. And the wall is beginning to take shape, uh, much to the bad guy's dismay. So speaking of the bad guys, chapter 4, verse 1. When Sam Ballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, Sam Ballot, bad guy number one, he became angry, was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah, bad guy number two, the Ammonite, modern-day Jordan, who was at his side, said, what they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. And so we'll park there for now. If you're taking notes, number one, a little pushback by the opponents of God. Now, here's team uh, evil one, if you want to call them or label them uh, uh, a name. Um, and did you expect anything else? Of course, there's going to be some pushback. Uh, God is at work. He's restoring He's healing, he's encouraging, uh, he's building up. And in the Hebrew, Satan, Satan, is also at work. Wounding, discouraging, and destroying. That's his mission. Now, Satan in the Hebrew means one who stands against or the adversary or the enemy or the opponent. So as God is influencing people and working through individuals to do his will and his good work, building up, Satan is influencing and working through individuals to do his will, his evil work, to tear down. Uh, John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus calls him a thief and says his job description is to kill, steal, and destroy. Uh, so here in the opening verses, San Ballad and Tobiah are angry and greatly incensed, your text says, uh, as uh, everybody begins to do the work of the Lord, they begin to do the work of their master. Um, they are infuriated. Those words mean to be indignant. How dare they do such a thing? So uh, the New Testament gives us a lot of insight. Um, our true struggle is not with the person, right? We talk about this all the time. It's not with the person who aggresses, but with the power that is influencing the human being that is bringing the opposition to what God is doing in our lives. 
And so Sam, Balan, and Tobiah, the bad guys in the story, there's another guy named Geshem, who you'll meet later. Um, they're just mere puppets. But they're dangerous puppets because of who the puppeteer is, called Satan in the Hebrew, as I've mentioned. So round one, and the first fruit of the unholy spirit in these two guys, you know, it's funny because the Holy Spirit is said to have fruit, means that um, if the Holy Spirit is present, there are nine things you will see, and they're called fruit, you know, love, Love, joy, peace. I got this. Love, joy, <laughs> peace, goodness, kindness, faithful, good, yeah, faithfulness, and yeah. who who has them down all night? Okay, Emily, let's hear them. Very good, all nine right there. Awesome. Come on, we've got to give her a little applause. And thank you for sharing on the worship team. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, now, you've got nine fruit from the Holy Spirit. There, there's fruit from the unholy spirit. And what's interesting to me is that there are nine tactics from chapter four to chapter six that the enemy uses. So fruit number one of the unholy spirit is called ridicule. Now, ridicule, as you see in the text there, you know, it's deadly. It works. It hinders God's people all the time. It's hindering a, a whole bunch of Christians in this day and age. Um, as I've said before, whoever coined the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me, never read Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 18.21 says, the tongue has the power of death and life. And check this out, Psalm 64 and verse 3. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim cruel words like deadly arrows. I know people who are in their, in their golden years, toward the end of their lives, who cry easily when they talk about words that wounded years and years ago. So ridicule the, uh, has been called the language of the devil. I mean, he used it to try to intimidate David. Uh, Goliath did, you know. Uh, and Jesus was mocked ruthlessly, uh, just trying to demoralize uh, men of God. And so uh, Warren Wiersbe said, some people who can stand bravely when bullets are fired at them will collapse when they are laughed at. So in chapter 2 and verse 19, it's already started, the ridiculing. Um, uh, chapter 2 and verse 19 says, uh, they laughed us to scorn and they despised us at the very idea. So now the wall's taking shape and so they return to uh, ridicule. And so here come now in your text a rapid fire of five arrows, if you will, um, to to the industrious people of God to kind of intimidate them. So in front of a large crowd of important people, here's a paraphrase. Uh, who, who are those weakling, pathetic Jews? Who, who do they think they're kidding? Get serious. Like they're going to rebuild the wall from all this junk. You know, it would take them 100 years to resurrect this disaster. Tobiah chimes in. 
he's Sam Ballot's right-hand man, and he says, take a look at what they got so far, boss. If a little chihuahua jumped onto it, it would <laughs> topple it all over to pieces. And so the crowd buckles over uh, with laughter, and everybody goes home or to the office or to the marketplace repeating the big story and how funny everybody is laughing at God's people. The big mistake they have is uh, saying they're going to restore their walls. Oh, they're not their walls. They're God's walls. That's his land. You know, so yeah, you know, it may not be easy for human beings to do that, uh, to do the work, but God is able. And so verses four and five, there's a response. Uh, the third prayer of 11 prayers that you will find in Nehemiah. And so, and, and, and this prayer is quite a doozy. I mean, check it out. Um, first of all, I like, I take away uh, from this, Nehemiah doesn't engage in a verbal volleyball match. He just goes to God. Uh, sometimes you answer a fool, uh, lest he be wise in his own eyes, and, or sometimes you don't, lest you be like him. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Uh, sometimes you lay the pearls out to be appreciated, and sometimes you, you cast them not, right? And so he decides, um, I'm not even going to dignify uh, this ridicule with a response. Uh, one writer put it this way, when insults are flying and tempers are hot, prayer to God will be a wiser course than returning fire. So the prayer, check this prayer out, it's really a paraphrase, uh, a paraphrase of it would be sympathize, Lord, with our painful plight. You know, take up our cause, deal with them, fight for us, let them have it for opposing you and your work and your people. Theologians call this kind of prayer imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory just means to incite God to bring the smackdown. Uh, to bring vengeance or to, uh, to bring justice. And so, um, you know, Psalm 69, Psalm 79, Psalm 139, that close of that beautiful psalm, uh, they are prayers for God to show vengeance. Now, uh, I don't know how you feel about that prayer. First of all, it's not instructing us how to pray. It's recording his prayer. Uh, but secondly, you know, there's nothing wrong with this godly prayer. Now, um, I'll tell you a story. Uh, one time we had dinner guests, and one of our kids, they were five years old at the time, and they asked the subject of Bible verses and favorite Bible verses came up, and the five-year-old, I won't tell you which one, said that their favorite verse was, and it got quiet and everybody looked at him or her, and they said, my favorite verse is, deliver me, God, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break, break the teeth of the wicked, from <laughs> it, <laughs> Psalm 3, right? Now, I have to admit, you know, it was like, oh, pass the mashed potatoes, <laughs> I liked the prayer. I was a little bit proud of that person, actually, uh, because I, I kind of like those kinds of prayers, too. Uh, David, 
And somebody's saying that's where he got it from, right? <laughs> that I corrupted him and, or her. Whoops. <laughs> and they may or may not be here in the room tonight. All right, so you figure it out. Um, David Guzik said this in defense of this. If we are angry at someone and have a real enemy, then we can go at them in prayer. Never in the sense of praying evil on them, but in turning them over to a good and just God because he knows exactly what to do with them. I like that. Uh, another writer put it this way, and then we'll move on. Let us leave imprecatory prayers to Bible heroes and find a safer posture toward our opponents by following Jesus' instructions to pray for their salvation and not for their demise. Amen? I will remind you, in Revelation at the end, when the world and great Babylon is falling, there are hallelujahs from us and the tribulation saints and the angels Hallelujahs at the demise of the wicked world. And so, you know, I think it is safest to just do what Jesus said and in regard to our enemies and those who hurt us to uh, pray for their welfare, right? However, okay, moving on. <laughs> 6 through 15, a bigger chunk. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when... Bad guy one and bad guy two. That, okay, I'll just say it. Sambalad and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God, another prayer, and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies were saying, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over. 10 times over in Hebrew is again and again. It's an idiom. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. So let's take a look at that. So we saw the pushback by God's opponents and now the strategy of God's people. Well, one commentator wrapped up that last paragraph by saying, don't let the words of the enemy get in and poison you. Instead, pray, commit the whole thing to the Lord, and then get back to work. So the strategy is to shake things off in life and to get back with the business at hand. God has come into our lives, your life, my life, gotten a hold of us, given us a job to do, given us the gospel, 
commissioned us to love one another, to strengthen and encourage one another, to contribute to world missions and to shine our light so that everybody can see and give praise to God and come to know him. We all have a job to do, but we all have bumps and bruises and we hit speed bumps. And, and what, what are your options? Everybody takes a punch and a knockdown and, and, and messes up and gets discouraged or hurt or wounded. The answer is commit it to God in prayer. Shake it off and go forward with the call of God upon our lives, back to the work. And so, I mean, it's just like Jesus. He gets the job done. We're supposed to follow in his footsteps. His brothers thought he was crazy. His family came to collect him because he was uh, out of his mind in Mark chapter 3. You know, he had all kinds of problems, people slandering him and his disciples being dull and slow. He just kept going forward. That's what you need to do tonight. You're thinking, well, what can I do? Look at my life right now. Commit it to God, pray, and go forward with the work he's given you to do. That's always the answer. Get back to work, shake it off, and move forward. Verse 6 is huge. The people literally, in Hebrew, it says, had a heart to work. There is nothing that a church that is committed and united with a heart to do the work, to be strong, not to morally compromise, to be out there just looking for opportunities to share the gospel, to die to self, to, 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 to pick up our crosses and follow him. In unity, there's nothing that we cannot do. And so you just see this miraculous work of building God's kingdom um, because their hearts were in the work. And so by verse 7... Uh, we're seeing that the devil apparently catches on that there's uh, goodness happening and that the people of God are, are getting ahead. So he unites four different groups uh, to come together to stop the work or to hinder it. So you've got, they're surrounded. You've got Sanballat and the Samaritans to the north. You've got Tobiah and the Ammonites, the Jordanians, to the east. You have Geshem and the Arabs to the south. And you have the Ashdodites, who are Philistines, to the west. So they're surrounded. Now, what is up with the devil who's behind the surrounding of God's people? What's up with the passion to kill the Jews? Well, he knows what Jesus told the Samaritan woman. In John chapter 4, he said, hey, listen, she's trying to tell him about the Samaritan religion. And Jesus says, hey, listen, Salvation is of the Jews. This is what the devil knows, that through Israel would come the Savior of the world. So he had to destroy Israel. He's always constantly surrounding Israel before she can produce the Savior of the world. That is Old Testament motivation to destroy Israel. New Testament motivation to destroy Israel is that he comes for a converted nation. So if there's no nation, there's no converting, and there's a broken scripture and promise. And furthermore, the Jews are, are, turn out Israel through the tribulation at the end becomes a Christian nation. He returns to a Christian, born-again Jewish nation. And Israel becomes the superpower 
of the kingdom that he's ushering in for a thousand years, Israel is grand central station of the new world that he comes to bring. They want to, the devil wants to destroy that because that's going to be grand central. And so that's, that's what's up with the whole world turning against the, a country the size of New Jersey. Just this little thing like this. And uh, it's just a pretty supernatural and amazing thing. And so we see here that the nearer the Jews uh, get to apparent success, the hotter the enemy's anger. And so uh, I always like to say, listen, if God's doing a good work in your life, just watch out. Just be aware. Open your eyes. Whenever God is just blessing, there's always a pushback, which, it, which leads to a blessing and a time to be able to grow. But, but be on alert when things are going really well in the Lord. Uh, so that's verse 8. They plot together, literally. Uh, it means to tie or bind themselves together in this conspiracy to destroy uh, the Jews and tear down those walls again. Uh, so they're surrounded by the enemy. What to do? Well, of course, notice the balance in, in verse 9 and the following. Um, pray and take action. So there's a nice balance there. As I like to point out, I've, I pointed out this before, uh, Moses and Joshua. Joshua probably got it from Moses because he's... he's Joshua is the mentee of the mentor, Moses. Uh, but bo both of them had heard from the Lord while they were kind of dawdling around in prayer. What are you doing praying to me on your face? Get up and get moving. But there are two scriptures like that, which I always find funny. Well, listen, the I'm praying about it is sometimes an excuse to avoid something that's scary or challenging or you don't want to do. So you just keep saying, I'm praying about it. You know what I'm saying? So time for some encouragement. So the people are losing heart in verses 10 and 12. You can see that there. Satan has dropped the D-bomb on them. Discouragement, that's nasty. Uh, the enemies are gaining confidence in verse 11. Uh, verse 13, Nehemiah posts some guards. So now he's taking action in the most conspicuous and vulnerable places, right? So he's going to arm uh, the families with swords, spears, and bows. Now, there's definitely an application here, of course, for the people of God in the New Testament with spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Don't leave home uh, without it. I really like how he says there in verse 14, the best way to dispel fear is to remember who God is. Remember the Lord and fight for someone you love. I mean, that, when you're in the trenches and you start thinking about your wife or your husband or, or someone who's poured their life into you or your kids... You will make the right choice if you remember God and then say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this hard thing for the love of, and, there, and, and there's got to be somebody there. For the love of my wife, for the love of my babies. Let me assure you and break it to you gently that, that somebody who isn't as fervent as fighting, 
you know, holding the weapons and working with all of their heart. If you're not living your Christian, your Christian life that way, uh, you're setting yourself up for uh, a big failure. I mean, your wall, your wall, your section of the wall is going to be embarrassing. You're never going to get anywhere if you're not this intentional, this fired up with, with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other and alert. And this is what we're getting from this uh, passage. So in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Paul says, put on the full armor of God. He's saying, Do you guys, are you guys wearing your helmet? Are you protected in your mind and your thoughts? Are you taking your thoughts captive? Or do you just let any thought come in? And wreak havoc up there. Philippians 4 and verse 8 says, Whatever things are good and noble and right and excellent and worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things, and then the God of peace will be with you. The helmet of salvation. You know, when a lie comes in, you don't just let it nest and build. You take that thought captive. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. You take your thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ, the helmet of salvation. Do you have a weapon in one hand and a trowel in the other? The weapon is a defensive helmet here. The belt of truth holds everything together. Go into Ephesians chapter 6 here. The belt holds the whole armor together. So you go away from the doctrine of the gospel into these new age ideas, you've lost the whole armor because you don't have truth. The breastplate of righteousness, that just means living right with God, walking in his truth. The Proverbs say, chapter 11, verse 4, righteousness, living right before God, uh, protects your life. You see, breastplate protects the vital organs, right living before God. Uh, and then the war cleats, you know, the gospel of peace. He's just saying, listen, you, you need to have the boldness and the courage uh, to be able to advance the gospel of peace and stand your ground. The one offensive weapon for the Christian today is the sword of the spirit of the word of God. Uh, Jesus said to the devil three times, the devil assaulted him with a temptation. And Jesus answered, it is written. And he tried again. And Jesus said, it is written. Quoted Deuteronomy three times. And the third time, temptation came. And Jesus said, it is written. Bible, 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 Bible. Word of God, word of God, word of God. It's the one offensive weapon that we have. The rest is all defensive to guard. That's what I take away from chapter 4. We build God's kingdom with our eyes on him and our, and, our, and our awareness of the dangers in the spiritual realms and in our own hearts, and, and we live with that awareness. Here's what it, it boils down to. Here's the strategy from chapter uh, 4. Watch, be on guard, work, and pray. Then it repeats. Watch, be on guard, work, and pray. Watch, be on guard, work, and pray. Why don't you try it? Watch. Yeah, one more time, kind of like you're alive. <laughs> Go ahead. Watch, be on guard, work, and pray. Okay, let's finish up. Awesome. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. 
The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore a sword at his side as he worked. (laughs) But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we're widely, widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes, the, the, the harnesses that held the weaponry and the holsters. Uh, each had his weapon, even when we went for water. So that finishes up the chapter. Let's make a few um, comments here. So we saw pushback from the enemies of God. We saw strategy of the people of God. And now the diligence that wins uh, the day. Doing God's work without spiritual diligence, one writer said, is a death wish. A death to the effectiveness of your life and the joy of your relationship with God. Spiritual sloth, oh, it's terrible. And you get lazy, you don't read your Bible, you're, you're not doing the work spiritually, you're not pressing in and seeking God. It's a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort to deny self, pick up cross, and follow. All three of those things, he says, if you want to be my disciple, you got to do those three things. And those three things take work and effort and intentionality. And if you get lazy about those things and you're just going to coast because you know the truth and it's not like you're out worshiping the devil or partying or doing everything, you're just going to dry up. There's no love and no passion. You're going to be miserable. You're going to be weak. You're going to be no fun at all. It's just going to be one big duty uh, to you and you're not going to enjoy it very much. Amen? I saw elbows flying. I don't know what's going on there, but okay. So, um, so what do we have here? We've got diligence. First of all, it's a diligence corporately. So Nehemiah divides half the team, half of the team standing guard, half of the team is working. It's awesome. That's an unbeatable, unstoppable combination. Number two, there are individuals now you see uh, who are being diligent now. Here's what I take away. You never take that armor off. They, you're never supposed to for a second say, oh, this breastplate of righteousness is so heavy. If I just put it down, just take a rest, just for a few moments. It's when the shields go off the Starship Enterprise. Have you not noticed that? As soon as the shields get turned off, the enemy knows and senses the shields are down and takes a shot at them. You don't let down your guard. You don't take off the helmet ever. He says, when we were going to the water, when we were taking the break, when we we're sleeping at night, it stays on us. We're diligent because we understand the work that God's called us to do is important. 
And there can be a lethal, deadly accident of some kind or incident. And so nobody puts their weapon down. They never took uh, the, hol- hol- the holster off. Uh, they wore them all the time. Not, listen, not paying attention to your marriage. Just for a little bit. Somebody's going to come in and flirt. And then that person who's not being paid attention to is going to feel like, oh, somebody's paying attention to me. It feels so good to be recognized and admired. So I wish my husband, I wish my wife talked to me that way. It was just for a season, just a little time. And a disaster, chaos. That's all the enemy needs is just one little break. And he's pleading with all of us, could you just lay down just a piece of that armor? And we do. And he comes over and he's like playing the violin. You're feeling sleepy. You know, oh, that's so heavy. And he just wants to work. Listen, when you cut your armor on, he can't do a thing to you. Nothing. Not one thing to you. You are safe. You're going to be effective and productive for God. You're going to be a healthy Christian role model. You're going to have abundant blessing and fruit and life and joy and all of this. It's the second you just start to get sloppy and take off the things and say, well, I'm just, you know, whatever, you know. So I love this. Verse 20, you know. Whatever they're doing, they're keeping an open ear for the sound of a trumpet. Hmm. I wonder what New Testament spiritual application we could make for the people of God who are working and doing God's work and being opposed by the enemy to have an ear out for a motivation knowing that the trumpet could sound at any second and maybe that would pull us together, unite our hearts and focus our lives so that we take this thing seriously. Hmm. I wonder what trumpet that could be. Uh, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. It's the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is getting closer and closer every single day. The world is in chaos. You can't even go to social services down in San Bernardino without 14 people perishing today and and 20 people in, in hospital. Let me just tell you this. The world is now looking for a savior The world needs a man of peace to come and make this all better. And in the twinkling of an eye, that's going to happen. But first, the church out out of harm's way gathered to God. And then that man of peace will have all the answers. And while everybody's saying peace and safety, then it's all going to happen. Listen, a trumpet sound is going to sound. And all your good deeds, they're sealed, done. No more time for good deeds. Oh, all that Bible reading that you intend to do, it's done. You'll never have an opportunity in your flesh to do a good deed, to have faith. You will never have it again because our faith will be our eyes. And so for time now for you to 
contribute to your IRA up in heaven. You have tonight, right? But you may not have tomorrow because when that's over, it's over. And then that sealed work that you bring before God is evaluated to place you in that kingdom that's coming in a responsible place to serve him. You're waiting to hear the end of your human existence and no more opportunity to express love for him in this fashion. So if you're listening right now, oh man, I'm going to do this. And, and this hard thing right now is facing me. I'm going to do the right thing here because I'm waiting any second. You guys, did someone blow a trumpet? Is that trumpet going to happen? You see, it's that heavenly perspective that you know is coming. If you're a believer, any second, any second, and then it's done, it's over. You want to face whatever it is you're facing tonight that's a challenge. If you're empty and you're just, you know, riding on Holy Spirit fumes, you know, take out your Bible tonight, get on your knees and do work. You may not have tomorrow. You can't afford not to be as diligent as these people, the people of God, doing God's work. And that's the takeaway of this chapter. When the trumpet sounds, you want to be found with the sword in one hand and the trowel in the other. With your heart soft and hot and on fire for God, not wandering around, not dull, not empty, but full. That's what you want to hear, be, see when you hear that trumpet go off. And in this way, as Peter put it, you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you, Lord, for the, all the wonderful truth that we're learning from these chapters our hearts get stirred up when we hear it in the moment, Lord, but then they get cold really quick. And I just pray, God, for me and for all of us here that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, just keep these thoughts up front until we act on them, Lord. And it's not just about hearing, but about doing and help us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.